Musician Lex Sadler joins me in the chat cave this week. But before we get to the interview, friends, have you subscribed to Coming Up Next yet? I know I bang on about this each and every week, but it's so simple to do. So if you haven't done it yet, I mean, just go and do it. it you know, just you can do it at comingupnext.com.au. It's, it's really simple. It's really straightforward. You just go to comingupnext.com.au. You select the platform that you want, if it's iTunes or Spotify or whatever, and it's going to download automatically for you each and every week. I mean... What more could you ask for from a free podcast?
G'day folks, welcome to another episode of Coming Up Next, the podcast. This is Coming Up Next, the podcast. You probably know that because you downloaded it. I'm uh, I'm Alistair Marks, this is my show. Uh, thank you to last week's guests, plural. Thank you to the Bano Twins uh, for coming on the show and sharing their story of, uh, of growing up in the industry together um, and I guess kind of having a divergence, you know, what what they feel like the or the way they feel like the industry's changed in the 15 plus years that they've been a part of it it's a really great conversation if you haven't checked it out yet you can find it at comingupnext.com.au along with the entire back catalogue of podcast rambles complete with rambly introductions as well i should add uh that tune you just heard at the head of the show that was not the uh the usual coming up next theme song uh that was monotronic uh, off the album Polytronic by my guest this week, Lex Sadler, from his project Rhythm and Stealth. Uh, you can find that album on uh, on Spotify or iTunes or wherever good music is streamed, downloaded or sold from. Uh, Lex has got a remarkable story about uh, moving from, from Perth, from the Perth music scene, over to New York City, forging a career there. It's been a little while since we spoke with a musician on the program um so when i was offered the chance to speak with uh, with lex who aside from his uh, his various musical accolades and achievements has uh, has played on shows like letterman and uh, and colbert um he's played at electric lady studios or recorded sorry at electric lady studios um played at you know the biggest jazz clubs in new york places like blue note so i uh, very grateful and very uh, fortunate to introduce you to my guest this week on Coming Up Next, Mr. Lex Sadler. So how long ago did you make the move over to New York? Um, I moved here in 2007. Wow. Um, beginning of the year. Yeah, it's been a long time. It's been a while. And Almost you, 12 years now. You grew up in Perth? Yeah, Perth. Uh, pretty much spent my whole time in Perth, actually. I took a little break in Sydney at one point. Um, didn't really work out for me and returned back to Perth, but always <laughs> really, yeah, I really wanted to come to New York. So that was kind of the big move. Oh, that's cool. What was it about New York, yeah. I guess, from Perth that was so appealing? Um, just, you know, as far as being part of music and part of the world, I felt like it was really the only option for that. I'd, I'd thought about the London route for a, a long time, um, which is typical of, you know, people from Perth like to go to London and, and spend a few years. <laughs> um <laughs> <laughs> but I'd, I'd always had this fascination with New York and um, I visited back in 2004, I think, for a couple of weeks and I just realised that at that time, you know, that's, that's really where I want to be. Um, so I went home after that trip and, and you know, really strategised about how I'd be able to make it over. Right, yeah, I could imagine that particularly for someone who's in an artistic scene uh, specifically music that a place like New York, which is really one of the, the hubs of the world for not only, I guess, 
playing music but creating music and uh, as a music community yeah absolutely i mean it's you know legendary status but um i I just wanted to be part of something bigger i guess i've I've done plenty of music stuff back in perth um was it something that you were doing was it something you'd been doing your whole life um i started pretty late I think I started when I was about 17 or 18. I mean, I, I, I played music, piano as a kid, um, but really took bass playing um, seriously in my probably my early 20s. Right. So I, 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 I did start a bit late. Um, I wasn't always kind of gung-ho on I've got to have a music career. Um, but I, I, I knew I wanted to do something with it at some point. Yeah, right. So what was yeah. the... When you started playing piano, was that something that like parents made you do, or school made you do, or what? Yeah, my 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 father was pretty heavily involved in in some music education back home, and he played himself. And um, you know, it was one of those one of those things you do as a kid. And I I do remember it with with mixed <laughs> mixed emotions. <laughs> I remember some of it was pretty you know pretty tough. I remember piano exams being nightmarish. Um, you know, my piano teacher was a mix of nightmarish and, you know, encouraging, maybe encouraging through some of the nightmarish stuff. <laughs> um, but, you know, there was also other, you know, opportunities in that, um, you know, around dabbling with, I, I remember the school had one synthesizer back then, and this is, you know, the 80s. So that was a big deal. And I got to tinker with some, you know, synthesizers back then. And, and that kind of got me interested in in electronic music and all of that kind of stuff. So it, it was worthwhile doing. And then I, I guess I stopped doing that when I went to high school. High school was just a different, uh, a different thing um, as far as, you know, what the focus was there. I was at a, a private school. It was more about um, academics and, you know, sport and rowing and all that stuff <laughs> so that kind of you know it's a bit of a drop yeah at that point <clears throat> i can definitely uh relate my um my old man was a french horn player okay and uh when i was i think 10 we were at school we were we were offered the opportunity to to choose an instrument um, right but choice was a very uh kind of loose term for me because i was kind of forced <laughs> to play French horn right. for a year, right, uh, right, and my teacher was my dad, so you could imagine that, um, right, I wasn't particularly enthused by the whole situation. <laughs> Do you remember what the first time, like the your first experience of like actually playing either piano or bass, or when you were playing on that synth, was where you kind of had that experience that really sort of set you up for what you're doing now. I really, I actually think it was when I started. Um, playing bass actually piano was very much a um, you know there was some ensemble stuff but it was very much a solo you know a solo thing where you're playing for um, your teacher or you're playing for you know an examiner or something like that you're trying to pass tests and really I think when I first kind of really kind of fell in love with it when I it was when I started playing bass and I started actually playing with other people and I realized, Oh, okay. Music's actually something you can do, you know, with others 
and improvise and you know the, the piano stuff is very much you know, classical training so you know it's about reading and reciting and, and all of that kind of stuff but actually playing and improvising and jamming with people I think it's kind of what what really got me excited about it and what was the was was there like a band that you started playing with or was it just the kind of the the collaborative experience yeah it was a collaborative experience but also I, I got into it um, you know this is back in the the late 90s I got into a uh, like a funk jazz band in Perth called delicatessen and for the time you know we were doing some some pretty high profile stuff around the city. So I very quickly kind of got into the, into the scene um, and got a taste of what it's like to, you know, actually play to people who were interested <laughs> and cared about what we were doing. Yeah. I could imagine that would be uh, quite gratifying and definitely um, spur you on to continue. Yeah, it was, it was interesting. It was, uh, it was, a, it was a pretty good time for, um, the Perth music scene as well, like that late 90s period. Um, there was a lot of stuff going on, especially in, you know, the Fremantle area and a few of those places were quite happening um, and progressive, actually, for for music. And I can, I can hear a lot of stuff now that's coming out of Australia that's, you know, reminiscent of, of some of that stuff that we were doing. Yeah, right. You know, that long ago, yeah. And so I guess between sort of the late 90s and making the move to New York in 2007, yep. what was your, what was your, what, what were you up to? What were you doing? Well, I, I, I went back to school. I'd actually dropped out of first year uni. Um, I dropped out of an architecture course and I was really spending my time playing bass nonstop after I dropped out. And then I realized after about six months, well, this is good, but I, I should probably go back and, you know, get a, get a degree. Um, so I actually went to study graphic design and following that, I, I got involved in, you know, that first wave of internet design stuff. So I, I had a, had a full-time job doing that, playing music on the side um, for quite some time, actually. I was pretty heavily involved in 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 that that scene as well. Was it a, was it an easy balance, or was it a lot of uh, late nights, early mornings? It, it was a it was a lot of late nights and early mornings. Um, but after about a year in my first job, I I quit. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a bit of a bit of a quitter. Uh, I quit and actually I, I started my own business um, about a year in. Really, so I could kind of afford myself the, the flexibility to do other things. I never really enjoyed being on someone else's uh, clock, so to speak. Um, yeah, so I balanced out pretty well at that time. Yeah. And so I guess intermittently, oh, you, you moved to Sydney for a couple of years. I did not last a year in Sydney. Oh, you didn't even last a year? Uh, okay, cool. No. I can understand that. I did not gel with Sydney. There were elements about it that I enjoyed. I mean, it's a it's a beautiful city, but I I just I found it quite difficult to to um, get integrated into into Sydney, and um, you know for a couple of reasons I decided to come home at the end of uh, 
end of 2004 and that was around the same time I made my first trip out here right uh, to New York yep I mean what did you see I guess as the difference between the difficulty embedding into Sydney but then feeling quite comfortable in New York I just think there's oh man that's a that's a big question I think because there's so many people from other places coming into the city here it's it just seems a lot more welcoming to me um sydney did not really have a welcoming vibe i do have some some good friends that i did meet there that would probably hate me for saying that but (laughs) there's just I, i don't know there's just something about the collective of motivated people from different places in new york that just kind of gets you it gets you flowing with the rest of it if that makes sense you know i I remember telling myself before I moved here, I'm, I was kind of like, well, you know, you're going to New York, don't expect to, to do anything in the first year. You know, if you don't get a gig in the first year or you're not playing, you know, it's going to take a while, blah, blah, blah. And then I very quickly got into it here just by meeting a few people. And it's just a lot of energy that, you know, kind of connects everyone who's very motivated to be doing things here. So that was a big difference for, for me. Right. Um, yeah, it, it, it's, it was quite a bizarre kind of paradox, I think, because I really would have expected it to be a lot more difficult um, to get into the scene here. I suppose you kind of, you would expect it to be more like the runs on a ladder than a kind of weird, like, mo- I don't even know what kind of uh, metaphor to use, but... Um, I, I, I do understand what you're saying. Was it an easy decision then to, after you'd been to New York, what was the, what was the feeling like? Was it almost well, immediate? Like I got to live here? Oh, yeah, or? Uh, uh, absolutely. I'm like, okay, I've been here two weeks. How do I, <laughs> what do I do to, to, to continue to stay here? Because I, I really felt like that for, during that first trip, I'm like, well, I need to, I need to leave, either leave now or just stay forever because i kind of felt even at that time you know things could could happen really quickly and i think that's what i still enjoy about the the city like you know 12 years in i feel like really anything is is possible at any time so i just wanted to you know i wanted to be part of that energy um you know so as soon as soon as i got home you know i had i had thoughts of okay how am i going to get back out here um you know, which is easier said than done, really, which is why it took me a couple of years right, um, to get back. And what was the process of making that happen? Well, it was just a lot of patience and kind of, you know, working towards opportunities that would would get me in the door here um, because the immigra- immigration stuff is pretty tough. Um, you know, I'm still dealing with that 12 years in. Um, so I was, I was fortunate enough to, um, have some work opportunities with actually a London based agency, um, that were opening an office here in New York and I was able to, to help them do that. And that was kind of my ticket in. Right. What sort so of stuff I did, were I you doing with I, them? Well, that was all digital work. So digital marketing stuff. So I didn't, I didn't even really come in, you know, as a musician, so to speak, actually not even legally did I come in as a musician. Um, 
I came in with a different, whole different working visa, with the with the intention to, you know, to make something happen with music. Um, so it was, you know, it's kind of a a pretty different way to arrive in, in some respects. You know, it, it didn't mean that I had to kind of come over with you know one bag on my shoulder and a bass in the other hand and see what I could kind of do. Um, it was a much easier ride, I would have to say, you know, having a job when I turned up. Um, what was then difficult was balancing the two lifestyles, <laughs> you know, because everything here just happens in the wee hours of the morning. Um, and that was that was pretty rough and intense. What do you for, mean for when you say what do you mean when you say everything happens in the wee hours of the morning? Well, I mean, you know, my first the first gig that kind of introduced me to most of the scene here in New York was a jam session called Freestyle Mondays. It was a hip hop jam session and it was on every Monday night. And we were trying to start that early for years. And by early, I mean around 11 o'clock and people just wouldn't rock rock up until about 1am. So as hard as we tried to get that started, you know, at a reasonable hour, we were starting that gig at about one in the morning. Um, which meant that we would finish at about four in the morning, which meant that I'd be getting home about 5am and then I'd get up and, and go to work the next day um, and be in the office by, you know, by eight thirty nine 9 o'clock. It's crazy. And I would do that. <laughs> uh, yeah. And I would do, I would do that every week and that's how I would start. That's how I'd start every week. And, you know, then it just continues through the week. Like there's something, there's something every night and it's still the same. And I, I see people out, you know, to these all these hours of the morning, I just think, what what do you have to do tomorrow? <laughs> yeah, because they all they all get up and go to work. So it's it's pretty remarkable, actually. You have to get up and yeah. do a podcast. Got to get up and do a podcast. <laughs> <laughs> so I suppose Not in the those thing in the world in those few years, well, no, in those few years between uh, when you were when you were trying to make the move to New York happen. Yeah, how were you kind of developing your repertoire as a musician in terms of uh, the sort of gigs you were playing, were you just kind of uh, side manning or were you putting bands together? What was your, what yeah, were you doing? I was, I was pretty much side manning at that point. And um, I was really just doing stuff locally in the Perth scene. I wasn't particularly, um, you know, I wasn't, I wasn't really going for anything major back home because I kind of knew that I didn't want to be there. Um, and that I, you know, wanted to get here as, as quickly as I could. So I, w- I was, I was playing quite regularly back home, but I, I wasn't, you know, I wasn't trying to put together, you know, a successful band or anything like that. I'd, I'd kind of been through those years with Delicatessen and, and we, I think we finished up in maybe 2003, but I'd, I'd kind of done that local original band scene for you know four or five years made a couple of records that kind of stuff and i really just didn't want to do that again to be honest I, I just wanted to i wanted to kind of chill a little bit and 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 play as much as i could and then just get out here as quickly as i could um which was you know in in the end pretty good for my playing because i was i was playing a lot and i was uh you know practicing a lot and i was i was getting myself getting myself ready to to get out here did you find that uh, 
well, I suppose what were the what was the more challenging aspect of kind of betting into the community in New York into the music scene? Was it the kind of logistics of balancing your life, your work life, with like we were discussing before with the music life, or you know, actually connecting with musicians? What was the? Yeah, it was a, it was a connecting with musicians was probably the hardest part at first. Um, I was randomly introduced to. A, uh, a singer named Mariella on a gig. This was probably about, I would say, four or five months after I moved here. I'd, I'd done a few little bits and pieces, but then I had a period where nothing was going on and I was, you know, a bit concerned um, about what I was going to do. And, and I was introduced to her and she hosted the Freestyle Mondays jam session. She said, you know, why don't you come through and, and, and sit in one night? And I started going to that. And that's really how all the connections started happening. Um, you know, back then it was, I think it was still the My, MySpace days. So, you know, there was some social media in place, but it wasn't nearly as, as ubiquitous as it, as it is today. And, um, you know, you did have to dig a little deeper in the real world to, to get connected with people. Um, nowadays, you know, it's a lot different. I think it's a lot it's a lot easier to, to connect with folks now, especially if you're new to a place. But back then, you know, I really had to find it and then show up consistently until people, you know, remembered who I was. <laughs> um, was there like a watershed you know, moment for you in that regard? Oh, de- de- I mean, that yeah, that was a watershed moment. It was like, okay, well, I can actually do this and I can actually, you know, I'm here and I'm, I'm, I'm actually capable I'm I'm not, you know, just some lackey from Perth who has a dream of being able to, to play. I can actually I can actually do it here, um, and I can do it on the level that that I want to do it. Um, yeah, it was you know it was a pretty interesting time because it still felt, I think, with the lack of you know social media or the infancy of social media, it still felt quite underground and you know, kind of a, a hidden gem and uh, this kind of, like I'd unlocked the, the secret to, to, to getting into the New York music scene. Yeah. I could you imagine know? I could imagine in those first few years that you probably would have played quite a diverse uh, slate of, of gigs. I mean, I know that you have played on Letterman and Colbert and you've played at the Blue mm-hmm. Note. What were, what, what are some of the like standout kind of best and worst gig memories you have from that sort of earlier time in, in New York? Oh, I can, yeah, I, I, plenty of worsts, a <laughs> lot of worse. Uh, I mean, I remember, you know, back then I remember, oh, mate, we, we would, you know, you, you would look through Craigslist, you know, ads. Craigslist is kind of like a online, you know, classifieds website. And I remember, I remember responding to one for someone and I ended up, you know, the first gig was I, I went to Queens, way out in Queens to rehearse during the middle of winter. And then our first gig was way out in Long Island in the middle of the day at some bar and there was literally no one there. And I thought, what you know, what am I doing? And then on the other hand, you know, I think Letterman for me was, was kind of a, a great memory and a great moment because, you know, I really used to watch that show Back home, I mean, I watch it with my dad a lot back home, and I would, 
dream about coming over here and just trying to get tickets to go and see it. So, you know, being able to go and play on it. And I think I played in either his last season or his second to last season. So I just, just crept in before he uh, went off the air. Yeah, right. Um, you know, for me, that was a, a really great moment. But then, you know, I'd been so... <laughs> I'd been so toughened up until that point because there's been so much disappointment leading up to that, which was, you know, disappointment is a really big part of the of the music business. So, you know, I remember getting the, the email to do it and thinking, okay, well, don't get excited about it until you actually step out on stage um, because this could evaporate any minute. So, you know, that, that was a, definitely a good one. And that was a good one to be able to, you know, call home and, and tell the folks, hey, you know, tune in. <laughs> I'm actually doing something <laughs> in my life. What was here, you know? what was the uh, what was the story of, of that gig happening? What who was the the band that you were playing with? And, and... that was with um, that was with uh, Ellie Ellie Golding. And um, long story short, she was coming out for a couple of TV gigs in new york so just needed a, a local band um couldn't bring her backing band out for those those two dates so I'd, I'd known a couple of people that you know i'd just made those relationships over time and they needed a, a particular look and feel for the the band that they wanted and um yeah that's how i got that that's how i got that opportunity right um i don't know if being australian helped or hindered me but um, yeah, it was, a. It, it's funny. I've ended up doing a few things for, for British artists that, that come over and need a band. So maybe that's, uh, maybe that's my thing, but, um, yeah, it was, it was pretty exciting to get that call. Keeping it in and, the Commonwealth. Um, keeping it in the Commonwealth. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So that was, that was a really, that was a really interesting experience. Um, you know, it was a, during a blizzard here and his theatre is notoriously cold. So I just remember, you know, being so cold right before the gig. I'm thinking, I don't even know how we're going to be able to play this. But uh, we got through it. And, um, yeah, it was just great to be part of, you know, such a legendary show, especially in his last season, you know, before he went off air. It must be quite surreal to be, like... You're so used to looking at it from the audience's point of view. To be looking at it from the kind of set's point of view must be quite surreal. It is, and and then you realise just how tedious um, television production is, and how tedious the whole. You know, you, you're playing for four minutes in a show that's taping at about four thirty p.m., but you've been there since eight a.m. You know, waiting for the stage to be set. Um, you know, going through it, numerous sound checks, camera checks, lighting checks, all of that stuff. And by the time it comes uh, time to shoot, you just kind of, you know, you're on autopilot by that point, just waiting to get it done with. <laughs> so it's kind of a weird, you know, most gigs you walk out on stage, you play for 40 minutes and then, and then you're good. And this is just a, a day of waiting for a four minute performance. And, and once you're done, you're kind of, well, now, now what am I doing kind of thing? So, <laughs> you know, it's, uh, it's definitely interesting and everything's much smaller than it seems, you know, the sets are really small and cramped and, 
you know, when you're looking on TV, it just looks like this huge, massive room and it's really actually quite, quite small. So, uh, yeah, it was a pretty interesting experience. Yeah. You said before that um, being a lot of being a musician is kind of dealing with disappointment. I think that's probably true of a lot of creative fields, especially if you're freelancing. It's like, how do you, how do you navigate constant rejection or constant disappointment? Well, I mean, I just learned after a while not, not to take it personally because I've, I've just seen – I took it very personally in the beginning, I think, you know, when, when opportunities wouldn't happen, I'd be like, well, why, you know, what did I, what did I do? Am I not good enough? Am I not this and this and this? And then I've just seen, I think I've seen how it works now on so many different levels that nowadays I'm just kind of, I'm a little bit more um, open-minded about things. And I, I generally just don't, you know, if something doesn't go my way, I kind of, you know, quickly move on from that and look for the next thing, I think. But I, re- I remember back in the early days, I had a, you know, a couple of really big ones that, that really stung at the time. And I thought, okay, that's it. You know, nothing, you know, that was my shot. Nothing's going to happen now. You know, it's over kind of stuff. <laughs> and um, I realized it's just not the case. Yeah. Yeah, there's definitely something to be said for uh, having that I guess not taking things personally and also, I guess, uh, having patience on your side. Yeah, I think so. And I think, you know, the other thing I've learned too is that I, th- I think the days of the, the big break, as they call it, are kind of over. You know, especially in the music business, that kind of one, that one golden opportunity that, you know, takes you into the stratosphere. I just don't think that really exists anymore. I think it's more of a, a series of, of little breaks and then you're just back into the, back into the cycle. Um, you know, which, which is a, it's a good and a bad thing, I guess. Do you think um, it helps to be, cause you know, you're as well as being a sideman musician, you know, uh-huh. you, you've also put your own projects together. So there's, I guess, a diversity with the way that you're approaching the craft. Do you think that helps yep. as well? Yeah, definitely. I think there's, um, you know, there's good and bad things about being a, a sideman. Um, you know, I think on most sideman gigs, you always wish something was maybe a little different. Maybe you would do the music differently or you would choose different people or whatever it is. And then, you know, conversely, when you're doing your own project, there's a whole other set of pressures. Like, are people going to like my music or, you know, I've got to come out of pocket to to put the, the other musicians on stage. You know, I've got to promote this thing. I've got to make records. I've got to do this, this, and this. And then I've got to make, you know, other content and, and all of that stuff to support it. Um, you know, sometimes it's just easier to turn up and play someone else's music, uh, take the paycheck and, and go home, um, rather than deal with all of the other the other stuff that comes with being an artist that has your own your own project. Um, but I think, yeah, I think the balance of the two is, is pretty healthy. Um, you know, I've gone through periods of, of not playing any shows for my own, my own project. And then I've also gone through periods of, you know, doing weekly things for, for that. Um, and then you get sick of organizing everyone or organizing every gig or promoting every gig. 
I think the promotion side of things is probably the most exhausting and the most tedious aspect of it. Just trying to get people out to shows is, is not easy. Um, and it requires, you know, requires so much work of the artists these days. Um, you know, those days of, of ha- having a manager and a PR person and a, a booker and a, all of this stuff is, is those days are over. I think the artist is responsible really for all of that now. Um, so it's a lot, it's a lot to, to kind of deal with when really you just want to be playing music. Yeah. There's kind of a sense that as an artist, you have to be an entrepreneur as well and be able to push all these kind of facets along. Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think, I think your ability to do that sometimes is maybe even a little bit more important than your, than your ability to make music. Mm. I think, you know, the successful artists these days are the successful, um, self-promoters yeah and it's a funny thing it's it's such an it's it's just not an australian thing if that makes sense like self-promotion you know that that's another thing culturally i i kind of struggled with at first it's just you know some of the confidence of people here is is counter it's just counterintuitive to what i grew up with you know we're very much australian personalities are very much you know Oh, well, you know, yeah, yeah, it's not bad. You know, we're we're kind of somewhat self, uh, you know, self-depreciating and... Well, it's part of the tall poppy thing and the... Yeah. It's almost like modesty or humbleness, but to a fault. It's it's not like... It's not necessarily conducive to, like, I guess, success on a global scale, depending on how you define success, of course. Yeah, I I just learned that, you know, it's okay to kind of go out with some some self-confidence <laughs> and you know i mean i've always uh, you know i i kind of i always keep it pretty tongue-in-cheek too yeah. when i kind of you know promote myself here because i you know it's 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 an inside joke to me in some respects yeah right but um but the way some others do it here is is amazing and hilarious at the same time and completely in earnest and it's uh yeah it's it's quite incredible to witness mm. I, I, I did a jam session the other night <clears throat> where i'm in the house band and and uh you know typically the first set is just for the house band and um you know we, we let others sit in in the, the second set and we're playing the first set and um I'm kind of in my own world, just playing, playing, kind of looking down at, at my base. And then I look up and there's a guy standing about six inches in front of my face that I don't know. And he doesn't introduce himself. He just says, he says, uh, he goes, I want to play bass. He's, he's walked up onto the stage <laughs> and standing right in front of me. And he goes, he goes, I want to play bass. And I go, okay, well, <laughs> when, when do you want to play bass? This is as I'm playing, you know, we're deep in a song. And he goes, on oh, now. I go, you want to play right now? And he goes, yeah. I go, all right, mate. Here you go. <laughs> and, you know, <laughs> there probably would have been a time where I would be like, well, no, you know, screw you. Kind of just wait your turn kind of thing. But I don't care anymore. I kind of, I thought it was quite funny. I kind of laughed and handed in the instrument. So, you know, but who, I would never do that to someone, you know? Yeah. This was just so strange to me. The balls to do something like that. Yeah. You know, not even, 
give me his name. I still don't know this guy's name. Yeah. You know, I've, I've seen him a couple of other times. <laughs> so, you know, but that's, it's such a thing here, you know, kind of sees the, sees your opportunity, so to speak. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I mean, I, I guess you have since moving to New York had the opportunity to, aside from the bass stealing guy, play with uh, some of the foremost musicians in the world. Uh, yeah. As well as on some of the biggest platforms that are available. Yep. Do you feel as though, or what do you feel as though the kind of, I guess, consistent lessons or things or attributes that you've seen in some of these people have been that might have helped you with your own evolution or success? I I really think that it's, you know, what I've, what I've seen is just to not take things too seriously. And, you know, I say that from not only the perspective of, you know, some of these gigs I've played because, you know, even at the highest, highest level, there's stuff that's just, you know, makes you scratch your head as to how it all works. Um, but, you know, some of these great musicians that I've, that I've played with that I've, you know, I'd idolized before I, I came out here. I mean, they're just, they're just as human as I am. Yeah. And they have the same, you know, they have the same problems and, you know, humor and, you know, the same, the same things as, as I do. Were you and, surprised? Uh, were you surprised by any of them? Um, uh, I, I, I wouldn't, well, yeah, maybe a couple of them. Well, yeah, in, in some respects. Yeah. But I, I think what I learned is that most of these guys are, you know, pretty easy to approach and, and, you know, kind of goofy guys. I mean, you know, they, they were probably music nerds at school that, you know, have found some kind of stardom and are now trying to trying to deal with that in their own way, you know. So when you kind of get past the initial, you know, idea of them being a, a superstar, you see underneath that they're, you know, pretty normal and funny and goofy and they don't really take it too seriously. And I think that's been the, that's been the lesson is just to kind of, you know, not take it too seriously. Um, I think it's good to be serious about your career, but I, I also think it's good to recognize where, you know, things are just stupid, <laughs> you know, and not to kind of, and not to try and fight those things, if that makes sense. Yeah. You know, there's some, there's just some things that are kind of immovable objects in each kind of industry. And the music business has so many of those things. And, you know, you could sit there and try and lament it or, you know, you know, wish for the days gone by where you could sell CDs at a show and do X, Y, and Z that just, that stuff just doesn't exist anymore. Um, you know, so it's good to have a sense of humor about that. And I think most of these guys that I've met, um, that I, I really put them on a pedestal would probably, probably have the same attitude, I'd say. Mm. So when you came to starting Rhythm and Stealth, mm -hmm. was was that a decision that was kind of what? Well, what was the decision born out of? That was a pretty organic project. Um, I've been doing a residency at um, a club called New Blue, which is down in the East Village, and. I'd played a few shows there with, with many other artists and, 
I decided to do, I was given an opportunity to take a Monday night slot there. And, you know, there's a few jam sessions around the city that are usually hip hop and R&B orientated. And I'd always had an interest in um, electronic music. So I thought, well, I want to do something a little bit more electronic focused. And I just started dabbling in um, electronic production. So my goal with that was to, you know, roll up every week with a bunch of new loops and samples and things that I'd programmed and just kind of throw them at the band and see what happened. And it was a combination of that and also stuff that I'd just been tinkering with um, in my home studio that kind of really started the project. Um, you know, there's songs that came out of jamming. There's other stuff that I'd, you know, pieced together while I was here um, at home. But, yeah, it was this idea of combining, you know, live instrumentation with electronic music production um, that really kicked that one off. And how long, I guess, before you really outlined the fact that this was, uh, was going to be a project that you were going to be the leader of that you were going to put together and, and uh, call it Rhythm and Stealth? I can't even remember when, when that moment was. I think, I think I kind of had that before I started that jam session, but um, I kind of knew I, I wanted to put something on record. I think it's something that, you know, everyone that plays music wants to, to do at some stage. I don't know if it's for, you know, self-validation or, you know, validation of others. But for me, it was just a matter of I want to I want to get something down on record that kind of shows what I'm what I'm really interested in musically. Because, you know, in this scene in particular, I'd, I'd just been playing, you know, hip hop and R&B for, for too long. And I'm like, well, is this really what I'm about? And it, it, it's not really, it's something I enjoy playing, but it's not, it, it wasn't an amalgamation of my influences. And um, I, I kind of wanted to, to really just show what I could, what I could do and what I actually like doing. Um, and that, that was my reason for kind of, for, for putting it down on, on record. But, it, but even that process was, was interesting and weird and, and morphed a few different ways. Um, in as much as I'd, you know, I'd made a record that was pretty much mostly me playing everything. And, you know, I, I wanted to release that overseas in Japan first. And I, I had a, a couple of meetings with, with some labels out there. And, um, you know, their advice to me was to, to get more featured artists on the, on the record. And I understood their rationale for it. You know, it's easier to promote if there's a few familiar names on there. But then at the same time, I'm just like, ah, oh, you know, is it not good enough as it is kind of thing? Is it not good enough that it's just, you know, it's just me? And, um, you know, I think that was another lesson about taking things personally because at the time I was kind of like, oh, man, this is a drag to to have to go and open these sessions up again and, and you know, am I just putting other people on it for the sake of, of this request or is this actually going to enhance the music? And in the end, I'm, I'm glad I did it because I think the, 
I think the product of of involving other musicians is is actually much better than than what it was before they were involved. Um, you know, it's just an interesting process, and I I think it's kind of uh, indicative of the way music's being made now, as far as you know, recorded music not really being a um, a permanent product, if that makes sense. I mean, I even got a, a notification today on a blog that I read that that Kanye's updated one of his albums. So what does that mean? You know, like back in the day you put out a record and, and that's it kind of thing. And now, you know, people are updating music that they've already already released. It's a it's a very different approach and you know it's a very different definition of what recorded music is. It is an unusual uh, or I guess a new kind of paradigm to look at things through. Because yeah. I mean, are you ever really completely satisfied with what you put out probably not but no you kind of get it to the level where you're like this is now it needs to have its own life but then if you introduce an element where it can be constantly evolving i mean i guess in a way they're doing that with film because they they're rebooting and remaking every film these days but yeah it's true. imagine if it wasn't a like if it wasn't a remake or a reboot if they just went back and just changed a scene yeah I mean, well, this is what's happening with music. And I think, you know, part of it is maybe a byproduct of the ease with which music can be produced now by literally anyone. Um, and, you know, I think, you know, with, with the technology, I mean, it's just, it's so easy to be constantly either not finishing anything at all. I mean, I, I think the biggest challenge for us as, as artists is to just finish stuff. I've got countless sessions that i've you know and ideas that i've i've put down that i've just never done anything with them and you know i think that was a point with my record i was just like wow i've actually just finished something <laughs> you know i think it's the hardest thing to do but now you know what does it really mean to to finish things because well when i play that stuff live i'm using pre-recorded material that i integrate with instruments but every time that we do it it's different and now I hear it and I go, damn, I wish I'd, you know, I actually wish I'd used this sound in this part because when I do it live, it sounds so much better. I wish I'd done this like this. Well, I could actually go and do that and put it out again. And, you know, the attention cycle and span of people is so, you know, it's so short now that well, would anyone really care? Yeah. <laughs> do you know what I mean? Yeah. You could keep updating things and modifying things and, you know, this is the other thing too about, you know, the paradigm of, of music as an art form. Well, you know, is the is the album format relevant or is it just a stream of, you know, content and, and creation that you just keep putting out there? Or is it even, you know, something that has to come directly from, you know, from one person to the next? Or is it something that's a you know, collaboration between the artist and the audience. That's the way I think it's going. I think it's going to be more of a collaborative thing that involves, you know, the actual audience and, and getting them involved in the creation. And people do that already, you know, whether they're asking for, you know, soliciting advice from their fans as they're putting a record together. I mean, that would never have happened in the past. Well, I think even just having direct access to your fan base kind of, changes the game which oh, social absolutely. media has created 
absolutely. It's it's very it's very odd because I grew up, you know, I'm in that generation that kind of straddled the the internet age. You know, I'm kind of a little bit pre and a little bit post internet, and you know the way I see younger people use it today. I, I never thought that I'd, you know, not be up on the edge of technology, but the way that they use it is just so different to to how my generation does it. And and it's funny to say that having grown up with the internet and worked in that industry, you know, I look, I look at some of the ideas that that kids are are doing with Instagram and and all of this kind of stuff and the way they promote themselves and build their art. And it's just, it's pretty foreign to me. Um, But it's definitely, you know, it's less about creating a product and going, okay, here it is, like it or not. It's more of a, you know, two-way conversation between them and, and and, you know, whether you want to call them fans or whoever engages with them, their followers. Interesting. It's quite interesting. Yeah. Yeah, wow. So having uh, had your album Polytronic out for a couple of years, I guess, mm-hmm. or even, you know, going back to the work that you used to do with Delicatessen, what was your, when you started in that sort of space, what was your, how would you have defined the band's success versus how you might define the success of Polytronic now or the stuff that you do, you're doing in New York? Yeah, I think, you know, Delicatessen was maybe 15 years ago, maybe a little longer actually. You know, back then it was, it was still in the early days of the internet um, and it was really about, well, we make a band, we practice, we write some songs, we make an album, you know, we try and get that album reviewed, get it in stores and then we try and get gigs and, and tours and festivals and stuff like that to, to promote that. And then that I think is just a complete opposite today. To the point where I, I feel like no one really knows, you know, what that path is. I talk about it with musicians all the time that are trying to launch projects. And the general consensus is, you know, we have no idea what we're doing. All we know is that we have to, you know, keep creating and, and putting stuff out there and connecting with, you know, followers basically because it's not really fans anymore it's the followers and and how you do that is constantly evolving and this goes back to my other point you know i I see younger musicians that have large really large followings um that haven't even you know put out a record yet and they're doing it through they're doing it through a conversation between them and their and their followers um that I think the older generation of musicians just don't, doesn't really get that, how that works. And maybe, you know, maybe we were a little protective of our, our art and don't want to be, you know, democratic about how we create it. But the newer generation, I think, is just, they're so open to collaboration and, and this idea of ownership of art is just completely different now to the point where I, I feel like, you know, ownership of art doesn't really exist anymore by the creator or the consumer of art. You know, you're streaming it, you're replicating it, you're duplicating it, copying and pasting it. 
this is how uh, I think this is how creators are, uh, or the creators of the future are really working now. And and would I, you know, I look back even two years ago doing an album. Would I do another album? I don't know. You know, is that the format that that people want to consume? I, I'm I'm not sure if it is. You know, would it, would it, would it, would I have more success putting together a series of you know one minute Instagram beats with videos, maybe, or covering something or reinterpreting what someone else has done? Or, you know, asking someone else to, asking my followers to manipulate something I've put put together or something like that. I mean, there's a lot of ideas um, as to what could be done, but I think the main conceptual difference is ownership and ownership of art. And I think that's what, that's what the older generation of artists struggle with in, in the modern age is just, you know, we have to protect everything we've put together and, you know, whatever I create is mine and I own it and that's how it's going to be. And that's how you're going to consume it. And I just, I just don't think that's the way anymore. You know, I, I, I think, I think it's just a more democratic level playing field because really anyone can do it now. You know, anyone can put together music. Anyone can put together visual art. You can, you know, anyone can be a, a great photographer with technology. Yeah. Doesn't mean you're a great, great photographer, but <laughs> well, you still got to you know learn what the I, craft. You know what I mean? You still got to, but but see, but do you? I mean, I don't know. Well, I guess the you know, the learning curve is is altered because you kind of I'm assuming kids basically have a camera available to them from a fairly young age. As soon as they get a a phone, they have a camera. Exactly. Or as soon as you've got a laptop, you've got GarageBand. Yeah. And you know. You've got it on your iPad and you've got games and all kinds, you know, it's a gamification of making music. Yeah. You know, you've got all of this stuff, you've got all of these tools and you've got accessibility to what, you know, everything. You've got the whole library of everything that's ever been created mm. at, your thing, at your fingertips, you know. It's, uh, I mean, where to go and, and sift through, you know, physical records to hear things. You know, I'm sounding like an old timer now, but <laughs> it, it wasn't it wasn't that long ago. Yeah, we had to do that. You know, now you can't even give away a, a CD. Not in America. In other parts of the world, you can. What was interesting when I put my record out in Japan? I mean, they insisted on physical media, and you know, it was in record stores. They still have huge, huge record stores and people lining up to buy CDs. And here, here in the US, you can't even give it away at a show. And I can't even play my own record, the, the physical copy of my record, because I don't have, a, I haven't had a CD player for for years. You know, but in, you know, in some parts of the world, they still have it. But here, I just think, you know, when you talk about music as an art form, it's very much a technology-driven uh, media and technology-driven art form. And when you talk about the influences in the industry and the people who are making the decisions and sitting around, you know, sitting around the boardroom tables and making the decisions for our future, it's all, it's tech companies, really, that are doing it. So, you know, it's the Apples and the, the Spotify's and so on. So it's a pretty interesting time. It's definitely uh, an evolved world from, I guess, where, where we started, uh, however many years oh, yeah. ago. Uh, I, I, I often have the thought that, 
our generation will be the last generation that remembers a pre-internet world, which is which uh, right now makes me feel old to think. Oh yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, you know, you've got kids born in the the two thousand, you know, mid two thousands that are aware <laughs> human beings that have no idea what it's like to not have that. Yeah, or to make an arrangement, right, and and, uh, and not have a a means of uh, of changing said arrangement. Right. With person. Absolutely. You just have to turn up or find a payphone. Yeah, exactly. Now we sound old. Absolutely. And on that old note, uh, thank you so much, Lex, for, uh, for no chatting worries. with me. Hey, what was the gig you were at last night? Uh, it was a, a jam session called The Shed. So it happens uh, once a week. Um, this one was out in Brooklyn. Um, there's there's a few of those, but it, again, late nights. <laughs> late nights and lots of whiskey. <laughs> lots of late nights. Lots of whiskey, yeah. Um, I end all of my conversations with the same question, which is, what makes you silly? Oh, man. What makes me silly? That's a tough question. <laughs> other, other silly people. I mean, I just know a lot of great, silly, silly people, and I think the sillier, the better, you know. Don't, think, don't take things too seriously. Have fun with what you're doing, and, and just remember it's about you know, enjoying yourself first and foremost. Yeah. Any, um, uh, any silly, uh, like gigging or touring anecdotes? Yeah. I mean, you know, the silliest one I can think of is, is playing the NBA all-star weekend halftime show at a stadium playing for three minutes, sitting there for 12 hours and then waiting six months to get paid that's pretty silly <laughs> and, t- and taking and taking the train home at the end of the night yeah silly and <laughs> yeah, tedious. I mean, silly and tedious and just a real insight into how it all works yeah and and why i you know i'm pretty relaxed about things these days yeah i think yeah. you have to be otherwise it'll just eat you away it'll eat you away mate yeah cool thanks so much lex cool really appreciate it thank you <laughs>